Well, last week, two weeks ago rather, we saw the book of Colossians introduced and overviewed. And the book of Colossians is built around the theme of the exaltation, the defense, the advocacy of the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is sufficient in our spiritual lives individually and in that which we do and believe as a church. But how do you initiate discipleship with someone? How do you come alongside them to convince them of the sufficiency of Christ when there are many hundreds of miles between you? How do you try to disciple them and convince them of the sufficiency and preeminence of Christ and the gospel when you haven't even met them? When all the information you have regarding them comes to, that, comes to you secondhand. And I dare say that there's some of us who maybe have been in that situation. You've got a friend, maybe a young Christian, who's trying to disciple someone else and they keep coming to you with their difficulties and I'm just trying to get them to do this and impress upon them the importance of Christ or whatever. And you're trying to disciple them as they disciple someone else. The next thing you know, you're getting an email invite to have a Zoom call with that person. How do you convince that person, maybe in that one session, of the fact that Christ is sufficient? Well, there are several approaches. You could land on them like a mobile home dropped from an airplane. And the Apostle Paul is a, that is part of the Apostle Paul's toolbox. In the book of Galatians, given that their very salvation is on the line, Paul dispenses with the niceties at the beginning of the, at the book. He just introduces himself, I'm the Apostle, and let's get right to it. And he starts tearing into them. But we could also take a page from the Apostolic Playbook and use the tools that we have in the book of Colossians. And you could lead with a doctrinal declaration of thankfulness that develops the priority of what God has done in the sufficiency of Christ and through the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Not surprisingly, Paul also does this in the book of Romans to start that book. He has never met the Romans in person. And so he starts out with a similar declaration of what God has done, the preeminence and priority of God as part of developing a discipleship relationship with them as he seeks their support as he wants to take the gospel to Spain. So we are going to see in verses three through eight four essential elements of doctrinal God-prioritizing thanksgiving that set the stage for effective discipleship. 17 little words, let me repeat them. Our text provides four essential elements of doctrinal, God-prioritizing thanksgiving that sets the stage for effective discipleship. Four essential elements of doctrinal, God-prioritizing thanksgiving that set the stage for effective discipleship. What is the first thing that Paul does as he seeks to develop relationship with 
the church at Colossae as he seeks to convince them of the sufficiency of Christ? Well, first of all, he recognizes the preeminence of God, and he does that in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. We give thanks to God. Now, one of the nice things about the Apostle Paul is that when he writes, he is just so regular. If he were a musician, you could set your metronome by him. He is always given to using similar phrases in similar situations. And when Paul is grateful for what God has done in someone else's life, he always uses this phrase, thanks to God. Give thanks to God. We give thanks to God. If it's something that he has received from God, he uses the phrase, God be blessed. Now in this case, he's never met the Colossians, so he says, we give thanks to God. But the emphasis of giving thanks to God is Paul's focus on what God has done on behalf of others. As he opens this section recounting his thankfulness, he's not flattering the Colossians, he's focused on the preeminence of God. God is the one deserving of prayer in general. God is worthy of all praise and thanks for what he has done in the lives of the Colossians. Paul's thanksgiving underscores the priority of God the Father alone to receive worship and praise, for he has done a great work. All that follows, all that he is thanking God for is from God and is centered on what God has done. We notice here that he gives thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's thankfulness to the Father also flows to and incorporates Christ, for Christ is God, the Son of God. From Christ's relationship to the Father comes the sufficiency of Christ. Now there's a lot of pagan and doctrinal error creeping into the Colossian church. There is much that seeks to dethrone the sufficiency of Christ. None of the foundational ideas or persons by whom this error is coming in can claim the relationship to the Father. None of them. Only Christ is the Son of God. Why is Christ sufficient? Why is Christ supreme? Because of his connection to God the Father who alone is worthy of all prayer and praise and thanksgiving. Paul also says, praying always for you. Interesting there. Praying 100% of the time is a tall order even for, a, for an apostle. So we should not understand this, that Paul is praying every single moment of every single day for the Colossians. Rather, whenever he prays, he is always praying for the Colossians and thanking God for the Colossians when he prays for them. And he is praying always for you. Because of who God is and because of what he has done, Paul prays for the Colossians in this intercessory fashion. Heresy was a problem. Heresy was creeping in. But the main problem of heresy is that it draws people away from God and denigrates the priority of God. Accordingly, Paul is praying for those who are being affected by it. A right view of God gives us a right view of people. Yes, bad ideas are bad. 
but bad ideas take a terrible toll on people and our care and our prayer should be for people that they might have the right relationship with God, that they might leave error and turn to Christ. When we lose a right view of God, we begin to lose a right view of people and how to disciple them. And that's essentially the problem with modern political discourse, isn't it? The battle of ideas. And we don't care about people. It's just that my idea win. That is not the case with the gospel. We desire to see people redeemed to Christ. We desire to call people to understand Christ and to turn their back to error. Now as we move from verse 3 to verse 4, let me first pause for some application. We should emphasize the priority of God in our approach to discipleship. As Paul seeks to bring the Colossians along on the right path of understand the sufficiency of Christ, we must emphasize the priority of God. God is always the focus of discipleship. Without a shared mutual recognition of the priority of God, discipleship is not discipleship. It is simply an extended harangue on a religious theme. How often is God the focus of your thanksgiving as regards God's work in others? One of the best ways to build fellowship that leads to discipleship is to get with others and to thank God for them and praise God with them. Asking people out to coffee, trying to get over that first hump to have that relationship and discipleship can be imposing but it's actually quite easier than that. It's simply coming alongside them and fellowshipping with them over what God has done and who he is. Do you want to see discipleship flourish? Balance your zeal to see bad ideas and wrong theology defeated with a passion for seeing men and women grow in knowledge and flourish in the worship of God. So the priority of God is the first thing that Paul advocates here. The second thing that we see here in verses four and five is the foundation of the gospel in salvation. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. With the centrality of God and the preeminence of Christ established, and as part of laying the foundation for discipleship with the Colossians, Paul now moves on to develop the reasons for his thankfulness for what God has sovereignly done in the life of the Colossians. In verse 3, he says, who? God has done it. In verses 4 and 5, what? What has God done? God's work in the Colossians' life is summed up in a triad of faith, love, and hope. And if you think you've heard this before, that's right. 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Now, I found it interesting in preparing for this message that some commentators seem to suggest that after verse 3, that Paul sort of starts soaring into some sort of pre-Pentecostal doctrinal ecstasy here and he just can't keep up with his quill and he's just holding on to his arm and he ends up with all these doctrinal truths that end up in verse 8 and actually continue on to chapter 14. And while there is no doubt that Paul is excited about what he's saying here, while Paul is passionate about what comes 
and from verse four and on, Paul is also being very deliberate. He's not just giving himself up into doctrinal ecstasy. He sees this as a prelude to building further on these essential truths that draw them closer to God and to Paul in fellowship. He is actively constructing grounds for effective discipleship and he does so by focusing on what God has done sovereignly in their lives. First of all, your faith in Christ Jesus. This is the essence of what God has done. The essence of the Colossians' testimony was that they believed and were holding fast to Christ Jesus as their savior. Christ is the focus and the foundation of their belief and this is linked to what God has done. They have professed Christ as their Lord and Savior and Paul is grateful for this because he recognizes that God alone can do this in their lives. But how does Paul know? He doesn't even know them personally. Well, he has heard from Epaphras of the love which you have for all the saints. This is the proof. The proof of the Colossians' faith was not merely their declaration of faith, but their love was very specific. If you'll notice there, the the phrase is the love which you have for all the saints. The word for love here which Paul uses is agape. It is a sacrificial love. This sacrificial love was seen in their sacrifice for all the saints, all kinds of saints, all saints without distinction. The proof of their faith is not their eloquence in evangelism or their grasp of doctrinal minutia. Frankly, even a demon could have this. Eloquence in evangelism, a grasp of the doctrinal minutia. Rather, sacrificial love is particular to God's people and is extended to all of God's people, rich and poor, young and old, mighty and humble. The proof of their holding fast to Christ in faith was that they loved sacrificially. Why did they do that? We know at this time in history to love the brethren, to stand by the brethren, to sacrifice for the brethren meant to sacrifice yourself. When a member of your church was hauled off to prison on charges of atheism, that he would not sacrifice to the emperor, that he would not give the Roman gods their due, and you went to visit that brother or sister in prison, you too were tarred with the brush of atheism. Your property could be confiscated. You too could be arrested. What kept them coming together as a body? What kept them ministering to those in the body in their need? What kept them sacrificing down to the very bitter end? Paul lays that out. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is their motivation. They are called, they were called to endure present sacrifice and suffering in following Christ because of their knowledge of their future reality of rewards and blessings in heaven that were far better than the temporal things that they would have even their life in this world. Their hope was in the ultimate salvation where soul and resurrection body walk with Christ in perfect joy in a new heaven and a new earth. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says, the more we fix our hopes on the recompense of reward in the other world, the more free and liberal shall we be of our earthly treasure upon all occasions of doing good. There is a great way to kill materialism and consumerism. 
It is the hope of what is yet to come. The church at Colossae had the essence of faith in Christ. They had the proof of it, the love for all the saints, and their motivation was the hope laid up for them in heaven. But what was the source of all this? The final aspect of God's sovereign work in the Colossians' life is that they have responded to the gospel, the word of truth. All that has occurred in their life is not due to cultural expectation or moral revolution or philosophical motivation. They weren't jumping on the bandwagon of the most recent self-help book. Rather, they have heard the sufficient word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is God's instrument for bringing sinners to faith, to love, and to hope. And Paul rejoices that God has worked in their lives to bring about that faith, love, and hope through the instrumentality of the gospel. The gospel's effect in their lives is as true and as sure as God himself and is thus the only sufficient ground for salvation, for fellowship, and for discipleship. Why should they listen to Paul? Because Paul shares in the same thing which they do. God has worked in their lives to bring about fruit from the gospel. Praise God for the gospel. By application, we should give thanks for visible fruit of salvation. It testifies to God's work and it is the common ground for mutual discipleship. How do you disciple? Where do you get the essence of discipleship? Well, make the gospel and living it out the central focus of discipleship in your life, in our lives. A third thing that we see here in verse six is the efficacy of God's worldwide work, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul is also thankful for what God has done in including the Colossians in the expanding work of God throughout the world. Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing is the opening phrase of this verse. God's work is effectual. His purpose is to save sinners through the preaching of the gospel and the message and the gospel is the message of an eternally sufficient sacrifice by an eternally sufficient Christ. His purpose is is being carried out effectually by his power. God's purpose will always be carried out effectually by God's power. At the moment in time at which Paul writes, it is continually fruitful and expanding in all the known Roman world. And in the 2000 years since, we understand that history testifies that it is still continually expanding and doing God's will and work. Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, Paul continues, the Colossians are part of that worldwide work of God. In his sovereign sacrifice, in his sovereign providence rather, the gospel came to a backwater city and bore fruit among them as they understood the grace of God, as they understood their need of salvation and the perfection of Christ, and their own lack of merit. God works in the world and we are part of that world. He works in us. The same thing that God was doing in other places, God was doing in them. As evidenced 
through their ongoing spiritual growth and maturity, as well as externally in the fruitfulness and increasing of ongoing conversions and sacrificial love in Colossae and elsewhere. The gospel is effective to accomplish what God intends. God intends to bring his sheep into his fold from all corners of the earth and he is doing exactly that and the Colossians are part of that grand work. Now it's noteworthy here that the Colossians salvation through their obedience to the gospel did not create just another minor little cult among many thousands of false religions throughout the Roman Empire. Rather, the Colossians' experience was connected to God's work in every place and in every time for people of all colors, citizenships, ages, and social statuses. Any attempt to build fellowship and engage discipleship on any issue but the gospel is to separate from God's work in the world to destroy our shared identity in Christ and that annihilates the grounds of our fellowship and mutual discipleship. I dare say that there are, in a congregation of the size of Summit Woods, visitors, perhaps members, who are struggling with the congregation as a whole, who are struggling with their growth group, who are struggling with their Ironman group, who are struggling with their microphone. Um, who are struggling with their Titus group. As they look around, they see that there aren't a lot of people like me in this congregation. I need more people like myself, people who I can relate to, people who share my status, people who share my experience, whatever the case might be. That is a common and natural complaint. But Colossians chapter one, verse six, should dismantle that. Wherever you are in the congregation, wherever you are in your discipleship group, your growth group, or beyond, if you are suffering from these difficulties, zoom out. Zoom out. See God's work in the world. What was once a cause of disappointment for you is in fact a marvelous testimony to the fact that God is working in the world. Rejoice with the fellowship that you are in. Rejoice with those who do not share the same things as you do because the gospel has brought you together. This is the great testimony of the gospel. And finally, here in verses seven through eight, we see the instrumentality of God's means. Not only are the Colossians connected to God's work in the world, but God has through his providential means, provided an instrument for bringing the gospel to them. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. The final doctrinal truth for which Paul rejoices in God's work is that God used Epaphras to bring the gospel to Colossae, and then God used Epaphras to bring the good news of the Colossians' salvation, their sacrificial love and their hope in eternity back to Paul. Interestingly, Epaphras will also take this epistle to the Colossians back to the church and he will discuss it and he will apply it and he will pursue discipleship on it with them. God uses people to do his work. And I would have you note two things 
about Epaphras. First of all, Paul says that he is a fellow bondservant. He is a fellow slave with Paul. Although Paul was an apostle and Epaphras was a minister in a small church, they were both in the trenches together, doing the same work and serving the same master. Not only is Paul a bondservant, fellow slave with Epaphras, but he assessed Epaphras as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ on behalf of Paul. Epaphras was reliable and persevering amidst the difficulty of doing gospel work. God is pleased to use means and God is pleased to use faithful proclaimers as the means for the proclamation of his gospel. Wherever you see the gospel expanding, look a little bit closer and you will find faithful people doing God's work. Epaphras was one of these. Epaphras was assessed as a fellow bondservant and a faithful servant of Christ in that order. He had professed himself to be a servant of the gospel of Christ. Anybody can do that. I'm not sure you could do it in Paul's time, but nowadays you just need to log onto the internet and fill out an application and you too can have a ministerial certificate land in your inbox within a few hours. He had professed himself to be a servant of the gospel of Christ, but it was time and labor and diligence that had shown his faithfulness. Now it's interesting, it's interesting that Paul is tying his reputation to Epaphras. How amazing is that? You would think that for acceptance by the Colossians, Epaphras would need to tie his influence to Paul, right? Listen to the great apostle Paul. I'm his friend, so maybe listen to me. But Paul is actually tying his reputation to this faithful minister, Epaphras. You don't know me, but you know Epaphras. I approve of Epaphras. Epaphras is doing the same work that I am doing, and he is faithful in it. All that I have to present, I do so because Epaphras testifies to me. He and I are doing the same faithful work. Epaphras was to be listened to and followed as he brought Paul's letter back to Colossae and then answered questions and pursued further discussion and discipleship on the matter of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. How can we apply that? Well, first of all, we should rejoice and give thanks for the means that God sovereignly uses. And we should treasure those faithful persons who God uses as the means. Secondly, we need to understand, and Paul would have you understand, that discipleship requires a means. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It needs the instrumentality of faithful disciples. Be given to engaging and receiving the means of faithful discipleship from those who have proven themselves to be faithful. Where there is faithfulness, submit to discipleship. So in conclusion, as we reach the end of this text, we have seen these four essential elements of doctrinal, God-prioritizing thanksgiving that set the stage for effective discipleship. In order to disciple the Colossians, Paul recognizes the preeminence of God. He moves on to the foundation of the gospel in salvation that God has used the gospel to save the Colossians. The Colossians are sovereignly and providentially connected 
to God's worldwide work in an efficacious manner. And God has used the instrumentality of faithful men and women in his means to do his work. As with Paul, I encourage you to look at this body and rejoice for what God has done and is doing among us through the gospel. Pursue faithfulness, engage discipleship, and flourish in the sufficiency of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you work sovereignly and that you have provided the sufficient means for all that we need in Christ and in the gospel. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in this congregation gathered here today, there are multiple manifold testimonies of how you are flourishing the gospel here. Continue to open us to these things. Make us faithful in your work. And Heavenly Father, we pray that even as you have worked in our lives, that as there are others here and beyond who have not yet heard your gospel, not yet submitted to the gospel, we pray that you might continue to bring about fruit and flourishing through their salvation. All this we pray in Christ's name.